0: Before we get started on this week's episode, I'm inviting you to join me with a project. A couple of listeners to the Lisa Fisher Said podcast asked if I would devote one episode to an AMA format. That's internet and Reddit talk for Ask Me Anything. So do that, ask me anything by emailing me at lisa at lisafishersaid.com. Link is in the show notes. There is a C in Fisher. Now, let's get started with the usual introduction. Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. I'm Lisa Fisher, a longtime broadcaster and journalist in Arkansas, who's been in front of a microphone or a camera since the 1980s. I think of myself as the queen of Arkansas media. For this episode, it's more chatter on intermittent fasting, but this one is really good if you're a newbie. Ben Tanner is the man behind FastingWell.com. He'll tell you how to get started, and you'll get to meet him right after this. Okay, this is a big month for those of us in the U.S. It's National Rice Month, and it's a really big month for those of us in Arkansas because Arkansas is the number one producer of rice in the U.S., and Ralston Family Farms that's the rice company I've been bragging about for months now, is one of those premier producers of rice. Now you've heard me talk about them on my podcast before because they're very unique in their approach to rice and farming. Ten generations have been farming and the Ralston family is still getting her done in the beautiful Arkansas River Valley. They have an outstanding rice product. In fact. My husband, didn't know he was such a rice snob, will only eat Ralston Family Farms rice. You can now get it at available Costco's, but I want you to check it out. In in fact, do this. Just go to their website, RalstonFamilyFarms.com. You can see where you can buy it. And then if there's not anything local to you, check out the savings you get when you save 15% with code FARM15. You'll get free shipping on all orders as well. Check it out, RalstonFamilyFarms.com. She won most talkative in high school, and she has been running her mouth ever since.
1: Welcome to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast with your host, Lisa Fisher.
0: Okay, so Ben Tanner's here for the science. It's the science of intermittent fasting because you've got that sciencey mind, but you also have the background in intermittent fasting. Tell me how you came to the table of intermittent fasting and the table where you only eat about four hours a day, that table or whatever
1: (laughs) yeah it varies I mean my own approach varies but um, so it's been a kind of a long weird journey I first I went to uh, podiatric medical school after college for a few years Um, and then eventually I got exposed to the physician assistant career and decided I wanted to switch and be a PA instead I love PAs and so I did both of those schoolings and we take biochemistry classes and physiology classes and we talk a little bit about nutrition um honestly not a ton that's one of the but wait a minute
0: more than the medical field traditional western conventional medicine does they don't take any nutrition classes in traditional conventional medical school
1: well uh so basically i basically that's what i experienced because when i went to podiatric medical school it, it was a school where we took almost all the same classes as the medical students, as the regular medical students. I thought because you cared about the pinky
0: toe, you would have done more (laughs) with nutrition.
1: Yeah, well, that's, uh, (laughs) you gotta know about nutrition to know about the toes, that's true. But anyway, my medical school experience was taking mostly like 80 to 90% of the same classes, especially during the first two years, um, as the regular medical students. And so I did have that traditional Western medical education And then kind of repeated it again in PA school, except, of course, it's kind of compressed. It's a little shorter. Um, And then I started working as a PA. And so I wasn't thinking much about fasting at the time. uh, I had never really done any fasting other than for religious purposes every once in a while. Um, And then it was a couple years later. So I started working in 2014. And it was 2016 when basically I stumbled into a couple of videos and podcasts um, by some particular people that it taught me a little bit about the science behind fasting and also the ketogenic diet because they're closely related. They have similar effects in the body and things like that. So I started to learn about both around the same time in 2016 and got all excited once it all kind of clicked and I was like, oh yeah, I, I heard of the ketogenic diet back in med school as a footnote This thing exists. We use it to treat epilepsy in kids who, when their medications don't work, um, and like, oh yeah, you know that's what happens when you don't eat carbohydrates. You start making ketones, and the same thing happens when you don't eat anything at all when you fast. And so, and then there's these specific health benefits related to ketones and other things. And so I got really pumped about it, and I started trying some different approaches to fasting, and I did a ketogenic diet for a few months as well, and and. The rest is history, but the rest is that I've continued to learn about it. I've read books, listened to a lot of podcasts, read a lot of articles, and then more recently started writing about it on my blog and things like that.
0: And I'll have all the information about you in the show notes for today's episode so they can find out more about um, your website and what you do. Well, let's talk about the science. So when you first heard 2016, I, I was introduced to fasting 2017, my college son who does a, a ketogenic diet, call it. he was an intramural athlete, engineering student at LSU came home and told me about it from the perspective of it's a health plan with the side effect of weight loss because he loved the science since he loved getting into ketosis and all that. So that was 2017, started listening to Dr. Fung and Jen Stevens. Mm -hmm. So you were a whole year ahead of that and we were kind of trailblazers in this. I mean, 2016, it was a fairly new topic. What was your foray into it? Who was the first person you found on your device or on your laptop listening going oh my gosh you got to listen to this
1: uh so with some of the interviews and some of the things that tim ferris did and talked about um, so he has had some guests who are doctors or researchers about the ketogenic diet and fasting particularly peter atia and dominic d'agostino Um, so I ended up watching a video that Peter Atiyah did. I don't know when he did it. It was probably a good 10 years ago or so, or almost that long ago. Well, he was ahead Uh,
0: of his time then.
1: Yeah. So he was on a ketogenic diet for two years straight. And he did this video talking about the biochemistry and his own experience and kind of why it can be beneficial for people with insulin resistance and things like that. So that, that video was kind of my first exposure. And then, then there were, there were a few others, like there's this podcast called STEM Talk. Um, and it's a couple PhD researchers, and they bring a lot of other people on. That about half the episodes episodes are about nutrition, and they had this guy on named Mark Matson, um, and he is a researcher who focuses on fasting primarily, um, and so he's a, he's really an expert in that field. And he came on, and they talked all about it, and he was listing all these different health benefits and talking about how it was really the natural. Thing for humans to do it was only in the last few decades that we eat all the time so those were kind of my first exposures
0: wow so there are a lot of really ways that this probably piqued your interest one from the traditional conventional medicine side because we know that high insulin levels produce um, people with type 2 diabetes have feet disorders we know yeah for sure <laughs> i mean all the time and as a physician mm-hmm. assistant you also see people who have high insulin levels and that's why they've gone to see their healthcare provider. What what type of medicine do you practice or is your specialty as a PA?
1: I spend most of my time in the emergency room. Um, I did family practice part-time for about a year. So I you know have an idea what that's like, um, but I've mostly done emergency medicine and I've done a little bit of urgent care as well.
0: Okay, but it's still, I mean, I don't wanna oversimplify this, but it goes back to, all the conditions from emergency medicine to urgent care to your feet to you name it so much of it points back to these high insulin levels that our food manufacturers have perpetrated and or perpetuated I guess is the word they want perpetrators <laughs> or both you're yeah. right perpetrator you perp um but it is something that we've been told and and we've said, big pharma just says, don't worry about your weight, here's a pill.
1: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and- yeah, you know, that reminds me of a book I read not too long ago. It's called Why We Get Sick. By oh, yeah. I've heard B- of by Benjamin it. Bickman. He's yeah. a PhD researcher. And one of his main focuses as a researcher is insulin. So of course he knows all about insulin. So in the book, he makes the point that when we diagnose diabetes, we use the blood sugar to diagnose it. Because blood sugar, blood glucose, in other words, is easy to measure. You know, we can do it with just a little finger stick and it's on all the routine lab tests and things like that. So that's, that's been the criteria for diagnosing diabetes for many years. But people that get di- type 2 diabetes eventually, which is the more common type, type 2, people that get that, usually they'll have elevated insulin levels, abnormally high insulin levels, 10 to 20 years earlier. So if we were using insulin to diagnose it, we would be way ahead of the curve. We would find out a lot sooner. And um, a couple other points from the book are just that more than half of American adults have insulin resistance, meaning meaning they have excessively high levels of insulin, and it's at the root of almost every chronic disease, a cause or major contributor to, so heart disease, Alzheimer's, kidney failure, the list goes on and on.
0: I just saw the meme or a statistic this week that was from a meme that said that it's uh, don't quote me but it's something like only 10 to 15% of alzheimer's patients have a familial link that most of it is that would mean most of it is environmental and diet in- induced
1: yeah. yeah for sure i mean they've they've nicknamed it type 3 diabetes because right. it clearly is related to how our body processes blood sugar as well so it's you know has a lot to do with this insulin resistance
0: Well, let's talk then about insulin because we do know that the finger prick tells us in, if we're in the fasted state, we hope that we're under a hundred, hundred and five, you know, kind of depending where you are and all those things, but no one really measures insulin unless you're getting a reading of an A1C, which I think kind of retrospectively looks back at like the last 90 days. Am I saying that right? Yeah. And A1C is, but no, why aren't people then getting an insulin reading when they go to their doctor? Why isn't that part of a CBC? Uh,
1: yeah, it's really just because um, it wasn't on people's radar for a while. And then it's it's a more expensive test. Um, and so just something about, I don't know exactly when we developed the capability to measure insulin. But there are a lot of blood tests that are not done routinely because we haven't developed a cheap, easy way, <clears throat> excuse me, we haven't developed as cheap or easy of a way to do it. Um, and so then they're not on the routine blood test cause they are more difficult or expensive. And that's the case with insulin. So I've never seen anyone get their insulin measured as part of like a routine physical. I'm sure it, in some places it's being done now, more like the concierge medicine or right. cash pay kind of medicine. Sure. But if you're just doing a routine, kind of physical, that that they're not going to check that. They will check your blood sugar and your A1C, but not your insulin.
0: But you're saying it's not the complete picture then. If you're just doing blood glucose and A1C, because from the way you, you're, what you're saying is that if we were checking insulin 10 years ago, we might have seen that we were running into trouble. Because it's it kind of probably sounds the alarm first, right?
1: Absolutely, yeah, so 10 to 20, years, so let's say 15 wow. years. Um, at least a decade earlier, in most cases, you would find out, hey, wait, my insulin's higher than it's supposed to be. I'm probably on my way to eventually having type 2 diabetes. It might take a decade, but I, I probably should do something to avoid that. <laughs> so people would definitely get those alarm bells a lot sooner.
0: So it's uh, probably part of your, it's a blood serum that they can into the lab right it's yeah it's of a blood test else. yeah okay. i don't have it, a
1: lot of personal experience with it but it's okay a blood that's
0: why i was yeah. wondering if you've ever done it have you may not have had when you're an intermittent faster we don't we typically don't have those problems but I, now i'm kind of curious next time i go for because i do have a thyroid problem um and get my lab work done i'm going to ask for that because i would like to see what are the levels like what are we looking for in an insulin reading do you know the (laughs) reference range
1: um i don't remember for sure the reference range it's a lot lower than like the blood the american version of the blood sugar like where we talk about 100 in other countries they use a different blood sugar scale of course but but like um for insulin it's something i i don't know but it's something more like 10 to 20 is you know kind of that's ballpark we're talking about and there's both a fasted insulin level. And then there's just like you can do a glucose tolerance test. Um, you, they also have like a insulin tolerance where you drink some, some sugary thing or, or whatever to see how quickly your insulin spikes.
0: Because let's talk about, um, insulin's role. Then the minute we take the bite of food, so we eat the bite of food, the pituitary signals right to the pancreas to release, am I saying this right? To release insulin, to lower that blood glucose because we don't want high blood glucose.
1: Yeah, so uh, uh, I think it might be a tiny bit simpler than that. Um, so the pancreas acts on its own. Um, it has these beta cells that create insulin. So the pancreas does a bunch of different things. So people might be familiar that it, it also produces digestive enzymes. So if you eat a meal, First, the pancreas is like, oh, look, there's some fat, let's make some lipase. There's some protein, let's make some protease. There's some carbohydrate, mm-hmm. you know. So it makes an enzyme for each one or a couple enzymes. And then it also has this job of pumping out certain hormones into the bloodstream, and one of those is insulin. So as soon as you start absorbing that glucose from your meal, once you break down any of the carbohydrates or the sugar into glucose, Um, and it starts floating around in that kind of local area near the liver and and the pancreas, it says, hey, there's some sugar, there's some glucose, now i got to pump out the insulin. And so it starts putting the insulin out into the bloodstream.
0: Okay, but then you, from those of you from the ketogenic religion, (laughs) and you don't have a lot of, you don't eat a lot of foods that are high in glucose, do all foods then have a glucose reading, even if they're fat? And protein?
1: Uh, no. Um, I mean, you, you could have some surprises once in a while where depending on someone's health or whatever, they might have a little bit of a glucose response, not from the food. Like if you eat pure fat, there's no, there's no glucose in that fat, but your body might respond with some Maybe a stress hormone comes out a little bit, just depending on your health or whatever. And if a stress hormone like cortisol or epinephrine comes out, then your blood sugar will go up a little bit. So there's there's other indirect ways that things could happen unexpectedly. But in general, fat doesn't affect blood sugar or insulin. Protein doesn't affect blood sugar right away. It can be kind of indirectly converted into some glucose. So it would be a much slower re- response, if any. And it has a minimal response on insulin depending on various factors like what type of food you're eating in general and then uh carbohydrates of course are the third macronutrient which stimulate both blood sugar and insulin
0: so i'm from the clean fasting philosophy and that is meaning during the fast i haven't eaten in uh, 20 hours i'm drinking green tea um and so uh, my philosophy is that anything could trigger because i'm not a lab rat you know we know what the lab rats do but i don't know what i would do but anything would trigger a response, even a cephalic response, that mm-hmm. food is incoming. So are you telling me that I could walk downstairs in my kitchen and get a tablespoon of lard and eat it, and I wouldn't release insulin then?
1: That's correct. Um, so yeah, there, you made a good point that there are other ways that people can, like if you, you see food and you start thinking about it, that can actually cause you to secrete some insulin um, would that happen from a table, table a, spoon, a spoonful of lard? Um, uh, maybe, maybe not, um, in terms of like a cephalic response with insulin. But, um, but if any, it would probably be a very minimal response. So a lot of people do this where they'll, they'll do fat fasting, is what they sometimes call it. Yeah,
0: what is that?
1: Uh, basically, just means you consume only fat. And so you use the fat as a supplement to boost your ketone levels and boost your energy levels. So whether, it, whether it's lard or, uh, more often something like coconut oil, butter, or MCT oil, uh, the coconut oil and the MCT oil specifically help you make more ketones more quickly. Um, and so people often put one of those three in their coffee or their tea, um, or you can eat it by the spoonful. <laughs> They're actually not that bad. Like we're, we're kind of conditioned in, in the West that like, it's gross to eat fat by itself, but it's not really that gross. But anyway, yeah, that's, that just helps you have more both fatty acids and ketones to use for energy. So often times people might feel a little more energized after doing that both mentally and physically.
0: Well, I heard Dr. Fung say I never understood why I had so much energy during the fast. Like again, I'm 20 and a half hours, close to 21 hours. I, Read teleprompter copy. Copy just a couple hours ago. All in the fasted state. I feel great, and I I could even go several hours before eating tonight. And I might or I might not. I mean, that's a great thing about fasting. You know, I uh-huh. I I'm not trying to starve myself. I, I want to eat, but he explained that because my son always said it's because you're producing ketones, but he went even deeper and said actually the adrenals get involved and you produce adrenaline during peak times in the fast when you reach autophagy which is the term we talk about that cellular clean out that's absolutely magical so are did you know that it's adrenaline do we also produce that is that different from ketones
1: it's different and yes yes to all uh so ketones could happen in the short term or the long term, depending on what type of food you're eating when you start fasting. Because if you're already on a ketogenic diet and then you start fasting, like you already have some ketones in your bloodstream and you already have the the cellular machinery ready to make more, so it's it's a little smoother transition. If you started fasting with no ketones in your bloodstream, they would gradually rise over the first two to three days. Um, But uh, especially if you fast more than about 24 hours, That's where you kind of get more into the um what what dr fung was talking about and he often calls these the counter regulatory hormones they're the things that they do a few different things uh they're kind of the opposite of insulin insulin pushes blood sugar down and these ones push blood sugar up a little bit um so they're they're countering each other yeah and so when i say these ones i mean adrenaline also called epinephrine okay and then there's norepinephrine which is like the sister hormone to epinephrine and there's also growth hormone and cortisol. All, all of those are kind of in that category and they have slightly different timelines and whatnot. But all of those go up a little bit when you're, when you're fasting, especially more than like 20, 24 hours, something like that. So if you fast for a few days, those all kick in quite a bit um, to varying effects.
0: So when you started, Ben, in 2016 with fasting, what was your, fir- were you an intermittent faster with a daily eating window? Were you doing extended fast at first? What were you doing?
1: Actually, I started with the 5-2 diet, uh, yeah. just to kind of try that out. So that's where you five days a week you eat like normal, and two days a week you eat a lot less food. So actually the idea is you eat about 25% of your usual calories. So that's been studied quite a bit. It was originally for breast cancer people who are receiving treatment for breast cancer. And then it's also been kind of studied for weight loss and definitely seems to work well for various health benefits, including the cancer um, like survival, but also like maintaining lean uh, lean body mass and things like that compared to the people who just did the traditional diet. Um, so I did that for a few months, um, pros and cons, but eventually I t- started doing more like the regular time-restricted eating some of the time. But actually, before too long, I did a five day fast, not a clean fast like you're talking about, because I actually, so this was like early 2017. I decided to do a five day fast because, like, well, you know, I was having a little bit of a stomach issue and some other things, like maybe that'll, you know, give it a break enough that it'll feel a little better or whatever. So that was kind of my rationale for just choosing that particular approach at the time. Um, but I did it, but I was eating like 200 calories a day. So I was. Just I had read a few things, so I was like, "Oh, I'll try it this way," where, you know, to like still have a little bit of like protein bone coming broth
0: in, broth or something of, that you actually chewed and swallowed something.
1: Yeah, it was chewing and swallowing. Okay. It was like um, a combination of this type of protein powder and uh, and some tuna fish, basically. But ben, <laughs> so that w- that was just an early experience that I had. But I've done many other approaches since then, and so typically I'm not really eating solid food when I'm doing what I would call fasting. But food
0: makes me hungry. I do better, you know what I mean? The minute I introduce food, that wonderful sensation of chewing and swallowing or anything, then I'm hungrier. So that's why I hear people do better by not consuming any calories because they say once they eat something, then they want to eat all day. How did you avoid that?
1: Yeah, well, to be honest, it wasn't terribly difficult. I mean, yeah, there was a, there was a lot going on. I, I mean, I was feeling a a little lower energy overall during that five day fast because my body wasn't really adapted to it. Um, so I felt both physically and mentally it was like a little bit kind of fatigued. Um, and then as time has gone on, you know, my body's gotten more adapted to using ketones and using fat for energy and things like that. And so it's, it's gotten better. And most of the time I do feel more energetic, but I guess to answer your question, um, I think there's pros and cons of whether you use any sort of supplement or something while you're fasting because for a total beginner, it's almost like someone who's starting out with the ketogenic diet and they talk about getting what's called keto flu. Uh, You could, you could talk about the same type of thing with fasting, whether it's short or long, where your, your body's going to be adapting and making some changes. And we're all kind of, kind of dependent on carbohydrates or, you know, we have been for many years as a society. And so anytime you start going without carbs, whether that's due to a low carb diet or to fasting, you're gonna go through some withdrawals basically. So that's why I think when someone has no experience with fasting, if they wanted to try doing a 24 hour fast, it wouldn't, you, it wouldn't be crazy to try it clean like you're talking about, but it also wouldn't be crazy to try it with what Dr. Fung calls training wheels. Um, which is where you have some things where it's like, oh, I'm starting to feel really hungry, really hungry. You know, I'm not used to this, I can't focus. And then you just consume a small amount of something that just gives you just enough of a boost without totally disrupting your fast. Um, And that could be the bone broth that you mentioned. Chia seeds is another one that he and Megan Ramos bring up a lot. Um, Both of those are great. Sometimes it's really just the salt that you need, and so that's where dill pickles can be a great option um, because they're really high in sodium or salt, um, but they have almost zero calories. Um, And then there's a bunch of other stuff, but the idea is you don't want, like, sugar or processed carbs or anything, and you want it, if possible, to be, like, a really low number of calories so it's not really revving up your digestive system that much and you could do the pure fat fasting like i was talking about where you take a spoonful or two of say coconut oil because that'll boost your ketones and just boost your energy a little bit so those are many or uh, several different options but like doing those are the training wheels or that's the dirty fasting or modified fasting sure some different terminology or you know and it has pros and cons because yeah will it make you feel hungrier afterwards maybe kind of depends on you and it depends on what you eat when you're doing it.
0: Well, that's true. I'm trying to think of the times that I have triggered hunger once was accidentally. um, I wasn't going to eat until like a big, one big meal. Sometimes I do an up day, down day approach, kind of like five, two ish in that I eat well. And then because I eat so well, the next day I'm not as hungry or I'm hungry so much later in the day. And I remember once opening, accidentally opening my window with some raspberry tea from, You know the sonic and within 20 minutes i was shaking sweating uh i felt nauseated and it's because i was really in some type of hypoglycemic reaction because i hadn't eaten in a while and i thought that was going to tie me over in fact it wrecked my day i mean it Mm. it 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 really sabotaged me you know because of the way it made me feel but that that was a high glucose that sweetener, it was no calorie. You know, that's what they're selling you. Girl, it's zero calories. Come on, put some in your tea. You're an faster. Come on, put some in your tea. Um, oh, and- is that
1: right? So it had a sweetener, but no sugar? Is that mm-hmm. what you were drinking mm-hmm. at the time? I guess so. Because okay. it
0: was, I remember when I went through, I was at Sonic and it was one o'clock or whatever in the afternoon. I wasn't going to eat till five that day. And I said, oh, I'd like an unsweetened iced tea. She said, would you like raspberry flavoring with that? It has zero calories. And I go, okay. Uh-huh. Never again. That was, you know, like, 2018, I'll never do it again. I remember the day um, because of the reaction that I had and that that's what I was picturing that my brain got involved, told the pituitary, food's incoming, um, or my pituitary then told the pancreas. Pancreas got so excited, got to release all my digestive enzymes and all the things, and there was no food because that right. is not food. But your, your brain doesn't read labels, so your brain doesn't know, and I felt so much worse. <laughs> yeah. But now that i'm thinking about it i might even try this when we finish i might if i can get a spoon spoonful of lard down or coconut oil (laughs) i'd like to see then if i felt the triggered response Mm -hmm. of hunger yeah and and seeing what that would do and the one thing because i coach intermittent fasting clients and a lot of times they'll say well dr fung says that i can eat and do all this and i have said in his defense was remember in the beginning he's a nephrologist or he's still a nephrologist but in the beginning he and Megan Ramos were dealing with a lot of morbid obesity and obesity Mm -hmm. and I remember one time in one of his books he said I do this for compliance you know like you said the training wheels that's a good way to put it because they think that I'm being mean like I'm the mean old schoolmarm that won't let them have their (laughs) Uh cream and sugar or their honey because it's natural Lisa I could have it in my coffee and I go well I go Dr. Fung says you can have cream and I go well yeah you can but I you know and it's individual there's not anyone I've dealt with I have one who's morbidly obese but the rest have that 10 or 15 20 pounds you know they want to lose and so I've always said he does that because compliance um, with his clientele or patients and training wheels is a great way to say that
1: uh huh Yeah, yeah, because it's really for when you're getting the experience or if you're going into it without having – if you're going into a longer fast, like more than 24 hours, without having a chance to get your ketones up beforehand by doing nutritional ketosis or ketogenic diet, then it's usually going to be easier with – some of the fat or some of the, some of the other things that just kind of tied you over. And I think for most people, most of the time, it helps to get extra salt in particular, and yeah. someti- sometimes some potassium and magnesium, just while yeah. we're on the topic of like fasting supplements. So there's it, salt is really critical for people on a ketogenic diet and helps a lot with fasting in general. And we've been conditioned, just like we've been conditioned to think that we shouldn't consume fat. What? Terrible, terrible advice, starting Ugh, with the, the first, uh, first dietary guidelines in 1980, Uh, telling us eat low fat didn't say anything about sugar Um, so that was terrible advice and by the way the advice to eat low salt for most people is not particularly good advice either Um, there's a book called the salt fix if anyone wants to get into the research and stuff around that but especially once you start cutting out the processed foods um, which, which have a lot of added sodium, of course. So if we start cutting out some of the processed foods and eat like real food or what we might call whole foods, though not necessarily from the store called Whole Foods. <laughs> right. um, uh, when we eat more whole foods, um, we'll, we'll consume a lot less salt. And when our insulin level is lower because we're not eating as much sugar, we urinate out more sodium. Our kidneys excrete more sodium. So if you have that double whammy that double effect of like lowering your sodium levels, guess what, your blood pressure is gonna be lower. That might be good, because maybe your blood pressure was too high, but your brain's used to a certain blood pressure, and now it drops. So how's your brain gonna feel about it? For a while, it's gonna be like, uh, oh, I feel kinda of dizzy, sure. I can't focus. Sure. So that's where the salt is most, that's why the salt is critical if you're starting a low carb diet or doing fasting.
0: And I would say um, also the the good salt, the Himalayan salt, the um, not the stuff with not not the crap, not the iodized uh, whatever that salt with the blue label with the girl mm-hmm. with the umbrella. Not not that. I one. think
1: it's called Morton.
0: Yeah, Morton. Yeah, not her. <laughs> I mean, nice girl, I'm sure, but not that salt. The the good salt because again, we're I think we are now in this movement, in 21st century, that we are looking in the Whole Foods lowercase w Lowercase, right lowercase
1: for sure
0: um foods that are there as whole as they can that we're trying to cut out processed things and some of those salts are highly processed
1: yeah are they just like the sugar You get most of your sugar usually and most of your sodium from processed foods, most people do. So if you're making your own food or eating unprocessed foods, you're not gonna get nearly as much sugar or nearly as much salt. And so you don't need to supplement your sugar, but you might wanna supplement your salt when you make those kind of changes.
0: Right. Hi friends, since we're talking about intermittent fasting, I wanted to tell you about a service I provide. In fact, I reference it several times during my conversation today about intermittent fasting coaching at something i do one-on-one for people some people choose to do it in a group session but what whichever way you choose it provides you both the science that i've learned from dr jason fung jen stevens laurie lewis the people who have gone before me in this. And it also helps you lock arms with someone, not just for accountability, but every week my clients have questions and they're unique to them, but they're usually a common theme of, can I eat this? What do I do about this? And I love seeing people succeed. I've referenced the chef that I'm working with, who's lost mm, almost 50 pounds, maybe a little more than that now. And it's just been a few months. Now, not everyone obviously has that type of success, but he had a lot of weight to lose. No matter if you want to lose five pounds or zero pounds, because we call this the health plan with the side effect of weight loss, just go to the show notes and see my email. It's fasting at Lisa Fisher said.com. <laughs> and, and I saw where one of the I don't know, Dr. Hyman said this. I think he did that if you have, um, high blood pressure, he said, if you cut out the processed foods, he said that it's not the salt. That's the problem. He said that processed foods also complicate things and yeah. will increase your blood pressure.
1: Absolutely. I was just reading one of his books and he talks about how sugar gives you high blood pressure and that's yeah. because, that's largely because of that insulin connection, higher insulin makes your blood pressure get higher, partly because it insulin acts on the kidneys and causes you to retain more salt.
0: Well, let's talk about if somebody's listening right now, because uh, a lot of times I talk to people who have had successful intermittent fasting journeys. You clearly have. How much weight did you lose? Was did you need to lose any weight?
1: Um, not not that much. Right. Yeah, I was never like super obese. I just like modestly overweight. So I mean, you know, ten or ten to twenty pounds right. kind of range. Right. So it wasn't like a big deal in terms of weight loss.
0: Right, but it changed your life in the way mm-hmm. that you approach things. I. And that's me. People are like, "Well, how much weight did you lose?" I go, "Well, maybe. I mean, I dropped a size or two, or maybe a size. Yes, yeah. not even ten pounds, but it changed my thinking. I, I wear in my closet now because this is my studio. I just moved, and I never <laughs> have to worry about getting in the back of the closet for clothes that, you know, the bigger ones that don't fit. You know, because I'm the same size. I don't change. So, and that's what I love—the freedom of. I do not worry about weight gain or." weight fluctuations even. Just don't worry, Mm -hmm. I do the same thing. I mean, just where I am. But somebody listening right now, Ben, who's really new to intermittent fasting, what would you tell them? What's a good starting point? What's your recommendation?
1: Yeah, so actually, uh, uh, recently I saw a post uh, on social media that kind of made me changed my thinking just a little bit because I used to say like oh start shortening your eating window just a little bit at a time yeah Yeah. which is fine but maybe an even better first step that kind of comes before that is to cut out snacking at least part of the day if not the whole day Um, and that is especially relevant after dinner because if somebody stops snacking after dinner guess what they're already doing time restricted eating or what we would call intermittent fasting sometimes. Um, Because if you think about it, if you have a dinner at kind of an average time, like six or 7 p.m. and then you don't eat after dinner, it's gonna be 13, 14, 15, maybe 16 hours until you have breakfast. So the snacking is really, that along with see if you can start replacing some of the processed food with real food because that alone is gonna start helping your body make some of the same improvements, so that you could do that for a couple of weeks before you even begin, but, but then cutting out the snacking would be kind of the first step in terms of working towards intermittent fasting.
0: Then what do you think about snacking in between meals?
1: Well, I think it can be okay. Um, there's different schools of thought. The thing is, when you're doing time-restricted eating which again is just like fasting less than twenty four hours you know where you just eat your food in a shorter window of time when you're doing that, um, it's important to have proper full meals with good quality protein, healthy fats, so eat plenty of food at those meals so the the problem is if somebody's snacking a lot, they might just like kids that's why the parents tell the kids not to have a snack before dinner
0: you're going to ruin your dinner
1: yeah, right so. So, I mean, if you know yourself well enough to know if like, oh, if I eat this, you know, these vegetables or whatever, you know, a healthy snack, if I eat these, I'll still eat my proper dinner, then maybe it's okay. But if you, if, if you know yourself and you know, like, oh, if I have that snack, I'll probably not eat enough at dinner and then I'm going to get hungry during the night and, and so forth. So that's kind of the pros and cons of the snacking in between meals when you're doing intermittent fasting.
0: Um, I was listening to Dr. Fung today. It's like I have my Bible study and then I see what Dr. Fung says. (laughs) And and he was just reminding people um, the dangers of processed foods. I mean, I don't think we can say this enough, the dangers of processed Mm -hmm. foods, because he said, and you know this, the way it circumvents your brain's ability to recognize satiety. Mm. Because the food manufacturers spend a lot of money to keep you going back to that bag of potato chips. Yeah. And, and the potato growers of America don't spend a lot of money to get you to go back and have another baked potato, right? <laughs> so we, those foods are programmed. I mean, in a lab. <laughs> Talk about your lab rats. We're all lab rats. <laughs> mm-hmm. You know, the foods are programmed so that you can't eat just one and that's why he says he his my favorite quote of his is obesity is not a caloric problem it's a hormonal problem
1: yeah for sure so that's a good point it's probably worth acknowledging because we harp a lot on the processed foods and not eating as many processed foods but that's much easier said than done because in the modern food environment Almost literally on every street corner, you have fast food or a convenience uh, store for sure, where you can get cookies and donuts and whatever, soda. Um, and it, like you said, it's engineered the type of food that we get in packages or at a fast food restaurant is engineered to be so easily consumed, go down so smoothly, and to make us want more. And I know this. This is a little bit controversial to say, but it's literally, in my opinion, addictive. Absolutely, it checks all the boxes. Absolutely. If you make it, if you like define what an addiction is, it checks every single box. And some people would be like, "Oh, I I eat sugary stuff, and I I I'm not addicted." <laughs> I, I, oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I would compare it to alcohol then, and say, "Well, yeah, just because you can drink and you're not an alcoholic doesn't mean that there aren't alcoholics." Um, But I think that I think actually most people are addicted to sugar, whether they admit it or not, Um, because how are you going to find out? Because if you never stop eating it, then you never go through the withdrawals. Um, But it's just a varying degrees. Let's put it on a spectrum. Like some people have a little harder time. Like i certainly have experienced this where it it does all those things that addictions do where like i'll have it in secret i'll go hide i don't i don't want other people (laughs) to see Um, i'll lie Uh, cheat and steal i'm i'm mostly kidding but in order to get uh more sugary stuff to eat uh, when i was a kid i certainly did sometimes um and so just all that to say that you know however much you kind of buy into the idea I wouldn't call it food addiction, I would call it more like sugar addiction, because it's yeah. not all the food, it's certain foods, right? Um, but, and that it's ubiquitous, it's all around us, it surrounds us on every side. <laughs> and when you go to someone's home, they're usually serving you or offering you similar things, often, you know, sweets and treats, um, or for all the holidays, which there's like 30 different ones throughout the year, Right. So, and everybody's birthday, and you know, everybody's all these, birthday. every weekend, ha- all these events, which are you know several times a week, once you add it all up, have these types of hyper palatable processed or sugary foods involved. And so it's super hard to get away from this stuff. I mean, I guess the first step is just looking at your own house and kind of looking at how you're doing your grocery shopping and things and then gradually going from there. But when we talk about avoiding processed foods, it's so much harder to do than you know, it's much easier said than done, I guess is what I'm saying. So just understanding that it is difficult, but even just taking baby steps to replace one, you know, processed granola bar with a piece of fruit sure. or some vegetables or something as just like a first step or the yo- the sugary yogurt to replace that with, you know, just either unsweetened yogurt or right, some fruit or yogurt. vegetable. Or, yeah, <laughs> right. something like that. That other
0: stuff is candy. yeah for sure cereal
1: is candy yogurt is candy. cereal is
0: such candy i mean all of it is just such candy um i'm finishing up my time at the institute for integrative nutrition new york getting my health coaching certification and i think it's called the sugar detox it's like the author of the book it's kind of the compendium of getting off sugar like she hasn't had sugar in years Uh i'll go three weeks And then I celebrate by having a cake. I'm so proud of myself. Okay. And she hasn't had it in years. Have you? What's the longest? I mean, what's the longest you've gone without the good stuff, sugar?
1: Uh, A few months, I guess. Um, You have done a few months. Wow. Yeah. Uh, So I, like, I'm hot and cold with that because, like I said, I kind of have those addictive tendencies where it's like if I have a little bit, I want to have a lot,
0: dude. I got (laughs) you. I (laughs) think everybody has that with sugar, though.
1: Yeah. I mean, to some extent. Right. I mean, I've literally kind of been like sneaking out of the house to go buy donuts and (laughs) hoping nobody would see me before. (laughs) Um, So, I mean, it's it kind of checks those boxes, like I was saying earlier. Um, But uh, but yeah, I've gone months at a time. And the way I've done that is a couple of things. One is uh, I've usually been doing like a lower carbohydrate diet. And when I eat more like healthy fats and more protein, it keeps me, it builds satiety. It it makes me satisfied. And so I don't want, I don't have as many cravings um, when I'm doing that sort of thing. Um, Or just eating like whole foods, that helps as well. But um, the other thing is I actually have used a commitment device um, where I told my brother like, hey, here's my rules. I'm not going to eat this, this, and this, but I am going to do this. Um, And here's my penalty if I don't do it. I have to donate wow. money to, to some cause I don't support.
0: Um, <laughs> That's great.
1: And, and then he would check in once a week and obviously you have to kind of have the honor system a little bit. If you're just going to lie about yep. it, it doesn't work. <laughs> but,
0: right. True. But
1: uh, I know myself well enough to know that that works for me. Um, there's also a website called stick. It's with a double K at the end that you okay. can make these kind of commitments and you can share them with people or not. And you can have a penalty or not. Um, when you, you know, for the same kind of thing. So for some people it works better just to to just get off all the sugar um if they lose hard. control when they have a little bit.
0: You yeah. Know. It's so hard. And we're recording this in the fall, so we'll air this in September of twenty twenty one. And you know, that's when you start pregaming for Halloween, <laughs> right. Thanksgiving, yeah Christmas and New Year's. And then Valentine's Day and then Easter. I mean well, it yeah. is well, it's just so hard and and that's where we talked about the cephalic response that's when the brain, that's like when you walk through the airport and you smell Cinnabon and you think about it so much you could finally you know if you sit there and daydream enough about it you could release insulin, <laughs> I mean you, know, you could break your fast now Jen Stevens who I call the mother of intermittent fasting says don't worry about what you can't control, I mean yeah we're only worry about what you put in your mouth every day and not in the time of day not the fact that you're walking through the airport and you're going wow that smells really good but it it goes back to what dr fung said that obesity is not a caloric problem it's a hormonal problem and so we're talking about all these hormones um he even goes because you know he gets nerdy about it and i think it's so cute <laughs> um yy peptide is not that one of them.
1: Yeah. Satiety hormone or something. That's a satiety
0: hormone. So leptin. I think so. So let's, let's go over this ghrelin is the one that I always tell my clients when your stomach growls, it's the ghrelin and you can't outrun ghrelin because we talk about the biggest loser. There's never been a reunion show, right? Yeah. Because (laughs) they're, they lowered their, their metabolic rate by reducing their calories. Mm-hmm. And and that's what I was hearing him talk about. That any time you reduce your calories, you just increase your leptin because your body protects you.
1: Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. Hormone. So just to just to kind of hit on that a little bit. Um, so it's pretty clear that hormones are um, the major driver of obesity. And, and a, a good analogy I heard recently was, you know, in general, we kind of look at someone who's fat and we shame them and say. Oh, you just eat too much and you're lazy you don't exercise um, but a good analogy is puberty so you see a skinny 10 year old girl and a few years later guess what the shape of her body has changed and it's right. not because she exercised more or less it's not because she ate something different at all she was probably right. eating exactly the same thing I mean maybe not exactly but if she could have been eating exactly the same thing and her body changed dramatically Um, and guess what the difference was is of course the hormones Um, so those are different hormones they do a slightly different thing you know in terms of fat distribution and stuff like that but in general when it comes to obesity it's mostly insulin Uh, stress hormones play a role and there's some other different things but it's mostly insulin because as I mentioned earlier most people have abnormally high insulin levels because of all the processed food and the extra sugar that we eat and just a quick note when we eat processed carbs like anything made from flour or potato products those turn into sugar inside our body quite quickly so um, so they're kind of the same thing once you put them in your mouth uh, or once you swallow them but anyway because of all the processed food and the extra sugar our insulin levels are high we get this insulin resistance where our body doesn't respond to insulin as well because it's too high and it has to protect itself from this excessively high amount of insulin but the high insulin has all these downstream effects of causing diabetes heart disease high blood pressure dementia kidney failure infertility and the list goes on uh, but the the original topic was obesity so high insulin also is like fertilizer to fat cells, as Dr. Hyman says sometimes, yeah, it promotes fat storage. So when your insulin is high, you get fatter. And if you allow your insulin to eventually come down, it makes it so you can release some of that body fat and start reducing your body fat. And how, how do you get insulin to come down? Well, you either avoid the, the processed carbohydrates, including sugar, which is like a low carb diet, or to some extent like a whole foods diet because if you, if you eat real food, you're not gonna eat nearly as much sugar. Um, or you stop eating for a while, and that's, that's what fasting is. And when you start fasting, your insulin gradually comes down, and if you stick with it for a while, even if it's just the short-term daily fast, like your insulin levels are gonna get better, you're gonna lower your risk of all these different diseases, and you're gonna have an easier time losing weight.
0: I love hearing Dr. Fung say this um, and Jen Stevens says it and other people in the fasting field and Dr. Hyman might too, but it's not your fault. These people, you know, because Dr. Fung says, I wish calories in, calories out worked because we'd all be our eighth grade size, right? You know, we'd all be slim because we would stick with that 1200 number, that calorie or whatever. I I have no idea the amount of calories I ate. I have no, I mean, couldn't tell you Um, because I eat to satiety and I, I'm at a point where I I don't overeat. And and truthfully, if I did overeat, again, I wouldn't be as hungry the next day, you know, because my body just evens it all out. But um, that's why this isn't fat shaming. And I know that um, Lizzo, the R&B artist has said, you know, talks about you skinny bitches, and I'm quoting. So if Apple <laughs> wants to dock this podcast because I use a bad word, but I'm quoting her. Um, and she says that people are fat shaming her And I've heard Dr. Hyman and other people say about people who are obese, we're not fat shaming you, but we are telling you that you have a health issue. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard to say this now without, someone's going to cancel me when I say it, but it's hard to say that fat people, the truth is they're not healthy. I don't care what you weigh, but someone might say, well, my blood glucose is fine, but now you're challenging me and other people, check your insulin. Mm Mm-hmm. I've yeah. never thought of that because I, I have o- overweight clients who will say, no, my blood sugar's fine. But now I'm thinking, hey, next time you go, ask for a- your insulin.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. Yeah. I guess there's a lot of ways to get canceled these days. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'll, I'll leave that part at that. But well, in terms it's of telling
0: like... the truth, <laughs> telling the truth is getting people canceled. We know. Yeah, that.
1: Yeah. Sometimes. But you make a good point. So. There's a lot of body image issues and I think that's Right. and then there's, you know, the bullies and kids like to pick on each other and so that's where a lot of the like fat shaming comes in. And the and from what we were talking about where people kind of assume that someone who's obese is lazy and just doesn't Right. use good advice or whatever. But no, they haven't gotten good advice. And no. the food industry is just shoving more processed food in their direction and is influencing government, uh, the dietary guidelines from the government sure. and elsewhere. Sure. And so there's all these factors working against us um, to make us fatter and sicker. Um, right. and, and your point is well taken that, you know, if you're obese, you're clearly not healthy. You're not um, healthy, yeah. You're yeah, not, you're not healthy the, if you're obese. Right. Um, has nothing to do with like your appearance or whatever. It's, it's about health because if someone is obese, that means they're probably gonna get diabetes and have a whole bunch of other health problems that are going to make their life miserable and cost them a lot of money and, you know, cause them to die at a young age.
0: And pain and suffering. Yeah. You know, uh, I mean, look at what from Dr. Fung as nephrologist as a podiatrist. I mean, again, we were talking earlier about feet. The problem, I had to go to a podiatrist uh, a year ago. I have a bunion, which is, I mean, could you fix that right now? Just zap it away. (laughs) Um, But when I was in there, I promise you I was the only person in that waiting room under 200 pounds. Mm. And I'm, you know, in the 150s, I'm 5'8". Um, because so many people are there for diabetic complications. That So that's what I'm saying. No one thinks about that. But then the other thing, I have one client who's lost. Um, he's gone from 360 to 280 um, in about or four months. I mean, he's a well, he, he tells his story, so it's okay if I share it, but he's uh, one of the most famous chefs in the state of Arkansas. And when he went to his uh, endocrinologist recently, because the endocrinologist hadn't seen him, last time he saw him, he was 360. He sees him two weeks ago, he's 290. Um, he was like, so doc, what do you think? The docs, it, it was almost like the doctor was mad the doctor may not get to go to Cabo next year because he's not going to prescribe him. He doesn't get any more metformin. I, mean, <laughs> I, I hate to tell you people that, but the carrot, that the, the the dangles right here is the incentive. It They're incentivizing physicians and the healthcare community to write more of these prescriptions. And so that's one thing of that. So the doctor, he said, well, doc, I've been doing intermittent fasting. And he said the doctor just shrugged his shoulders, said, yeah, whatever works. He was like, well, why would... I, that's where I want to say, why wouldn't you tell everybody that you can lose 70 pounds? Now, he has lost it in a very three months or so. I mean, yeah, that's quick. But, but obese people, once he mm-hmm. started listening to Dr. Fung, he started doing 42 hour fasts, and he's in a kitchen all day with food, you know, this wonderful food. Oh, um, yeah. So he has lost the weight in a short amount of time. But he said the doctor didn't high five him, which I right. thought was interesting. And then the other component to that is, if you talk to anyone, I mean you know this, they get the type 2 diabetes diagnosis, the doctor gives them metformin or puts them on insulin or whatever they're taking. And a month later, guess what? They just gained 20 pounds because insulin's a fat storing hormone. I mean Yeah. Absolutely. That's the first education people need. Then <laughs> when they go to a physician is, you need insulin, but it's going to make you fat and kill you if you get too much. All right, we're done. You know, that's your 10-minute visit.
1: Yeah. Yeah, and that's a good point. Um it's we probably shouldn't be giving insulin to type 2 diabetics. It basically it makes their and condition worse. And this is not
0: medical advice, so I just yeah. want to go ahead and make that disclaimer. We yeah. are just talking as two people who have studied and witnessed what intermittent fasting and reducing insulin can do. Okay, you have the floor again. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah, so no, of course, yeah, like you said, nothing on this is individual medical advice cuz we, you know, we don't know your individual circumstances. But um, but in general, and you'll see this in like that book I mentioned earlier called Why We Get Sick yes ben I have Vickman. that written down he specifically talked about that and explained why giving insulin to someone so type 2 diabetes by definition is you have too much insulin right and if not by definition <laughs> then by reality like that's what it is, that's what right, causes that's what it, it. means um, right and so uh so he I can't remember what analogy he used but it's like you have way too much of something and then you give more of it and you think that's going to make it better
0: isn't that the dumbest thing we've ever heard? <laughs> <I> mean-
1: <laughs> and it's it's for the other reason what I mentioned earlier about this is how we diagnose and monitor diabetes is with the blood sugar, not with the insulin. If we were looking at the insulin and using that to be like, oh, the insulin's too high, we need to do something to get it down. Just like we do with the blood sugar. If the blood sugar is too high, we need to get do something to get it down right one of those options is to have you inject insulin that'll get it down then your blood sugar is lower it also makes you fatter and sicker but that's okay so but if we backed up and said oh your insulin's too high we need to get it down how would you do that well you can't inject anything to do that so you would have to take away some of the sugar carbohydrates or you know go some go without food for a while which is fast. Right.
0: Faster. And then you don't get your trip to Cabo. That's my point. <laughs> yeah. It, and it's because if you know anyone, I remember our, we had a neighbor who um, was a senior in high school and my son even came home and said, mom, have you seen, you know, Allison?" I said, what? And he goes, she's down to 90 something pounds. And she was just so skinny and so thirsty. And sure enough, she had type one diabetes. She was 17. Her blood glucose was 650. Wow. because she did not make insulin. Mm-hmm. So she's on the pump, she's now a dietitian, it changed her life, you know, her philosophy and everything. And with that, she gained about 20 pounds. Probably 30 pounds in about 3 months. It got her up to I mean she she was too in the night she was in the 90s, you know, she was way too thin, but yeah. that shows that she couldn't you have to have insulin. I understand that. But too much of it is just not our friend. For sure, and that and that's it. it. And that's it. Nobody is educating people on this. We spent so much time and money educating people on low fat and low salt.
1: Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Be,
0: and again, I mean, you look. <laughs> there was money involved in that too.
1: So oh, big time, yeah.
0: There's there's no and and that's it. There's no money involved in telling people to not eat as much during the day. You know. Eat what you want, just yeah. cut the amount of hours. Then the doctor goes, well shoot, what am I gonna do? <laughs> well, tell them not to eat as much. Okay, one more nerdy question and then I'm gonna wrap it up here. Okay. I'm hearing about mTOR. I hear Dr. Mindy Pells talk about it, I have heard Dr. Fung. Do I want mTOR or don't I want mTOR?
1: Uh, so it's not a yes or no. The answer is you want it in certain places at certain times. Uh, so, so, so it's
0: a hor- It's a hormone too, I guess. I,
1: I don't think you would call it a hormone, but I could okay. be wrong about that. Okay. More just like a little molecule that lives in certain places and oh. our cells and stuff. Okay. Um, so basically mTOR is this thing that goes up when you consume protein more than anything else. That's what stimulates it.
0: Okay. Um,
1: and if you have high mTOR levels, that could increase your risk of, say, getting cancer because you have all this like growth signal. It's like a strong growth signal. Oh. So, and pe- uh So if you ha- did like a mice mouse experiment and you made it so some of the mice don't have any mTOR, they would pro- they would not grow as much, but they might not get cancer as much. And I could be messing some of this up, but the basic idea okay. is it's a growth signal mainly in response to protein. Some people start to some people talk about how it might be better for your longevity to just have lower mTOR levels in general got it there are certain molecules out or certain like supplements out there that kind of lower mTOR uh again this is this is not something i think about every day but i, I want to say resveratrol does that but i could be oh, okay. i could be wrong about right. that so
0: i just heard verify. her i i followed dr mindy pels and i've heard her talking about intermittent fasting and mTOR and I, the way she might sound that we didn't want it but It's sometimes a byproduct of our lives. So
1: yeah, but there is a little clarification there. So actually you kind of need mTOR to build muscle as well. So basically you want it in the right places at the right time. And if you're eating healthy food, including high quality protein, and here's the key, if you exercise then you end up with mTOR in the right places at the right time. So in Perfect. other words, you get mTOR specifically active in your muscles, helping you build the muscle, but not just like all over your body going crazy. And it's that's kind of how it is with like growth hormone and IGF-1.
0: Right. Because that's why I was wondering yeah. if it was involved in in that point. It, it follows Those- a
1: similar pattern in, from my point of view, which is people are like, oh no, stop eating meat or stop eating protein because you're going to have too much growth hormone, too much IGF-1 where it turns out when you exercise you take up the IGF1 into your muscles specifically and so that then it can act there instead of just floating around and making you know other parts of your body get bigger or something like that so i
0: got it yeah. you didn't know that you're uh, you'd have a dissertation here you'd have to defend your <laughs> thesis yeah
1: you to make a list of all these like super <laughs> esoteric nerdy Topics,
0: right. yeah <laughs> yeah well that's i'm kind of esoteric and nerdy myself well great job ben i've got all the information sending everybody to your website you keep keep the fast so what's your today what when are you gonna break your fast when are you gonna open your feasting window
1: oh good question so i'm in the pacific time zone and it is 1 p.m okay already wow didn't realize it was that late um and i haven't eaten anything today um and, and you haven't died yeah i haven't died Isn't that amazing? so so i ate relatively late last night in this particular case just since we're talking about today so it's only been a little over 12 hours um since i ate and so i don't know what i'm gonna eat but I, I probably eat pretty soon i usually do at least 12 or 13 hours but then sometimes i go 14 15 16 so i'm one of those people that doesn't do it the same way every day i kind of play it by ear
0: um, which is a good thing
1: yeah and and i i kind of wait and see how i'm feeling I might get busy with something eventually I'll feel like I want to eat something and eventually I do want to eat something because I don't want to wait till the very end of the day right so but but yeah so maybe in an hour or two we'll see (laughs) or maybe just as soon as we're done we'll we'll see how I'm feeling but and and maybe if if it's okay I can just mention so you said you were going to send them the info it's fastingwell.com is the website that's my website I have a blog there And there's a freebie you can download. I'm about to change it. So maybe once this airs, it'll be the intermittent fasting checklist. So it has kind of all the things you need to think about before you start intermittent fasting. If you just go to the the homepage, you'll be able to find that soon. Um, And pretty soon I'm starting a podcast. So I guess by the time some people listen to this, maybe that will exist as well.
0: That is perfect. Have all the information. Great job, Ben Tanner. Thanks for listening to the Lisa Fisher Said Podcast. Be sure to hit subscribe and download all the episodes and leave a review, won't you? The Lisa Fisher Said Podcast is produced by ClantonCreative.com.